someone tells you a, a fantastic story that you don't believe, the more that they insist that you believe them makes you not want to believe them all the more. Essentially, so maybe I tell you that I call it like a, a two-foot fish, right? And if, if you don't believe that, you, you shouldn't, but uh, if you don't, you, you'll probably sh- shrug it off or scoff at me or something like that. But, but the longer and harder I assert that my story is true, the more unlikely you are to believe me. And the reason that, that we don't believe increasingly in insistent people is that they seem to have something invested in whether or not, specifically in whether or not we buy their story. So if my story is true, I could just go home and appreciate my huge fish, regardless of whether you believe me. But if if I really need you to believe me, then it seems that your opinion of my story is what's important. Whereas if I if I actually had the the bigger reality, then then it really doesn't matter all that much what people think of me. Now the point is that Paul reminded the Corinthians of something along these lines in verses seventeen to 24. No Christian should feel inferior based on their worldly status because we belong to Christ. You have the reality of an eternity-defining relationship with God that is entirely decisive about your existence's importance. Which means that it does not matter what people think of you, your calling in the world, your tasks, your job, or your marital status. You belong to Jesus in all things. Which means people can think whatever they want of you. And their opinion is vapor compared to being God's people problem we have as we as we come to these verses is figuring out why this discussion is right here in scripture so maybe you notice that as we read so chapter 7 contains Paul's response to the question about marriage's goodness from the Corinthians but here he addresses these broader issues of circumcision and and servitude Now, I think the connection is in trying to establish the points he's already made that that Christians should not feel discontent or lesser because of of whatever their present marital status is and trying to build that on a wider basis. I think that's what he's doing here. So so the, the marriage issue is what vexed the Corinthians. And, And Paul had taken that on directly but good teachers regular, regularly try to support their position about a, about a contentious problem by showing how the same principle applies to other topics. So, if I want to convince you that baseball is better than football, if I wanted 
I might contrast the two games' various merits, but I might also appeal to, to the principle that we all know that using our hands tends to be better than using our feet. Right? So nobody's going to show up to dinner expecting to put food in their mouths using their feet rather than their hands. So why should we do that in sports? So in chapter 7, though, to get to the important stuff, Paul directly addressed the marriage issue throughout this chapter and exhorted them to be content in whatever situations they find themselves since they have become Christians. Now, in the case that the Corinthians may have thought that he just sort of invented the best answer that he could cobble together for their question, Paul actually explained how he was drawing his response about marriage from broader principles that he applied to all aspects of the Christian life. And so the main point is that Christians should not feel the need to change their social standing or vocation just because they have become a Christian. Christians should not feel the need to change their social standing or vocation just because they have become a Christian. We're going to think about this in three points. The shape of the Christian life, the signs of the Christian life, and the significance of the Christian life. So first, the shape of the Christian life. Right, so as we dive into this text together, verse 17 establishes the principle that that Paul wants to outline throughout this section. It reads, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Now, I hope you've got your Bible right there. And if you jump down to verse 20, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. And then let's jump down again to verse 24. So, brothers... In whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Now see, obviously, Paul is making one point. He began this section with it, repeated it in the middle, and ended with it too. God is using Paul to say clearly That Christians should not feel the need to change everything about their lives, in one sense, when they become Christians. The gospel and the Christian life are for people of all kinds and all callings. For the circumcised and uncircumcised, so Jew and Gentile, regardless of your personal qualities or backgrounds, they are for the, the gospel and the Christian life or for the bond servant and the free person. So for people of all job descriptions, giftings, and callings. Now this, this section of scripture has, has two subsections, I suppose, two, uh, subdivisions. No, the first is in verses 18 to 20, addressing circumcision and, and the second Section, subsection in verses 21 to 24 addresses servitude. And the question is, right, what's at stake here? 
clearly they they are both driving at that same point that Christians should not feel burdened to change the external features, if we could put it that way, of their life in order to be a proper Christian, as Paul stated that three times in this short passage of Scripture. And so what that tells us is the character of the Christian life is what's at stake. Is a Christian someone who looks a very specific way in all times and all places? Or are there variations on how we can appear and work? Why, so why would Paul go to something like circumcision on this point? Because if we, if we read this, even though he uses similar language in comparison to the book of Galatians, Paul was a lot less worked up here about circumcision. And so it seems unlikely that the Corinthians had added circumcision to, to faith in Jesus Christ as, as a requirement of the gospel. On the other hand, though, indentured servitude and freedom were likely issues in Corinth. Now, it, it may help to know how this system of, of bond servants worked. So, so say there's a house that I would like to buy, but I don't have the money for it. Uh, in the servitude system, I go to a, a wealthy patron and commit myself to work for them for a set time if if they buy the house for me or you know the first readers many of them were likely in this situation where they'd committed themselves to being a bond servant for to attain some goal of theirs to get out of debt or something like that and the point at stake in in both instances the circumcision and servitude instance is that the the purely external features of your life are not what really matter but your relation to the lord now i mean do you see that though verse 19 i think makes us really clear for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision but keeping the commandments of god verse 22 and 23 for he who was called in the lord as a bond servant is a freed man of the lord likewise he who was free when called is a bond servant of christ you were bought with a price do not become bondservants of men. Paul's clear point was that it, it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentiles, your ethnic cultural background, and it especially does not matter if you're marked with a ceremonial indicator that may have had previous religious value under God's covenant, but now is simply a point upon which some want to insist it does not matter into which social class your job puts you what matters 
is that you belong to Jesus and that you pursue faithfulness to Him. The shape of the Christian life is staying focused on believing the gospel and following Christ in true faithfulness. Which brings us to our our second point, the signs of the Christian life. So, So the issue that Paul addressed here might seem kind of obscure because it can be a bit removed. It's unlikely that anyone here is stressed about circumcision or indentured servitude like they were in the New Testament, but but do these issues transpose into our day and age? Now, okay, so when I was in high school, secondary school, uh, the Christian community in which I was involved was really into things like wearing Christian t-shirts and what would Jesus do bracelets. And that was the mark of being a Christian. This is what, this is what Christians do. And even though I at least thought I was a Christian then and may have been, uh, I was just not into broadcasting that point in that way by posting a slogan across my t-shirt. And some people made a big deal about how they wore Christian t-shirts and I, I didn't as apparently that changed our Christian quality. And that might seem like a, a silly or, or weird Example, especially given the differences between evangelicalism in America and, and Britain. But, but there is the same point about a priority on what we advertise outwardly through things that, that mark us on the outside with little emphasis on if our hearts were angry, if our eyes were set on lustful objects, if we genuinely hated our sin and and longed for godliness there were arbitrary rules about what to wear and and what music to like but it was completely overlooked whether i was deeply keeping god's commandments and if we think about that second issue of of servitude and freedom, I think we have examples really close at hand um, because this has easy ties to the whole class issue that is such a predominant thing in this country. Something that is often in view more and more throughout the world, but even very pointedly here in London, is that distinction that we have made between upper middle and lower economic classes or also between you know how at least we distinguish it as blue or white collared jobs or working class and salaried positions it's not that far of a jump between paul insisting that christians did not need to belong to one sector of working society in order to be properly a Christian to applying this point to our context that Christians belong to 
every type of career path, as long as that career path is a legitimate vocation. Yeah, so I should I should be clear there to to close loopholes that the Paul's point does not apply to illegitimate jobs. No Christian can remain a career criminal. No Christian can continue to work and devoted or uh, continue in work devoted to harming or extorting other people in any way. The, the diversity of vocations that God gives to his people does not include unlawful or illegitimate tasks. But Paul's discussion does push us to ask a few questions. Do, do we value surface-level advertising over heart-level endeavors to keep God's commandments? Do you wear the metaphorical Christian t-shirt while fuming with anger? Do you pride yourself on some specific mark that you have put on yourself as a Christian more than emphasizing unceasing efforts at repentance? And on the other hand, do you think that your own calling in this life or someone else's is somehow suboptimal for a, a Christian? Are you under that Christians end up in certain types of work or belong to a specific order in one of those supposed classes? Do you wish that everyone in our church was from one type of work? Because that flatly contradicts God's saving purposes to bring all sorts of people from the kingdom of darkness into his marvelous light. The signs of the Christian life are not in our external markers, but in our commitment to believing the gospel and following Christ in true faithfulness. Which brings us to our third point, the significance of the Christian life. So, okay, so we've seen how this text teaches us that Christians have all sorts of callings, whether that be to marriage or singleness, as we've seen in previous sections of this chapter, whether they be from various cultures or from very different vocations. And we've seen how that provokes us to consider the way that we think about our own lives and the lives of our fellow believers. And in light of that, we should look at why we should be glad for what Paul said here. So, okay, now I'm going to take my chances here. Perhaps you remember back to our first sermon on this book. I'm sure every word is locked in your memory. Where we studied the doctrine of vocation. And if you didn't, that same notion appears here, that God calls us to the tasks that he has for us. That is what a vocation is, whether that's, whether that is something you're paid to do or not, God calls us, and we all have more than one 
vocation to some degree or other. God calls us to the tasks that we have. And we see that in our text, verse 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. There is a specific assignment that Christ... Remember that Paul always refers to Christ as the Lord... And here he equates that with being God. Uh, But there is a specific assignment that Christ has for you, and God has appointed you for that particular thing. Notice that Paul used calling in, in more than one way here. So verse 18 twice says, at the time of his call, uh, verse 20 Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Verse 22 mentions this calling again in verse 24. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. This call makes you a Christian. The Christian life begins at the time of your call. God speaks through His Scripture and He brings about faith as His Word goes forth. We are so tremendously sinful that we suppress, reject, and deny the truths that we know about God as they are written into our hearts even as as those made in His image and placarded across nature. And we kick against those truths about God, our sinfulness, and how we need a Savior as, as Scripture makes them clear. But God is not content for His elect to remain in sin, and so He calls us in such a manner that His sovereign power enables the gospel message to destroy our resistance and effectually convince us to come to Christ. God breaks through our sinful disposition to create faith in us. The first call that begins the Christian life is when God irresistibly summons us to faith. But as we see, Christ also calls us to a specific life that He assigns to each of us. Which means that everyone has a call. And note this. Everyone has a calling that is important to God. It does not matter from what culture you come, whether you are blue or white collar, lower, middle, or upper class. God has called you to that role. And it is an important one in God's sight. We come from all types of callings. And one of the things I, I even want to make really clear is that this may have nothing to do with your paid job. Maybe you don't have a paid job. Maybe you are a stay-at-home mom, a homemaker, or or searching for work. Regardless, God has called you to that. And it is important to Him. People don't get to look down at you. You are not just Whatever it is your role, if it's not the culturally elite thing, God has called you to it. 
And so it is preeminently significant to him. Now, I think one of the things that we should note is that whatever it is you're doing may not always be your role. As Paul wrote to the bondservant here in verse 21, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. Or or we could maybe better say, uh, make more use of that, of that freedom. And Scripture doesn't prevent us from, or forbid us at least, from pursuing new jobs or or changing our position in the world one direction or the other. But it does forbid us from thinking less of whatever task it is that we have right now. The world tends to think less of those family-oriented vocations even though we all have them, even if you have paid work, you have a home vocation, like caring for the home. And the world tends to look down on manual labor jobs too, but the simple fact is that those callings are important to God. And He has given them to you. The the significance of the Christian life is not in your vocation or your worldly endeavors, but in belonging to Jesus. That is the significant, the the all-encompassing significance of the Christian life is that you are Christ's. After all, you were bought with a price. When you say to the world that you're work is important, it matters little, whatever it is you're telling them that you do. At the end of the day, it matters very little if they believe you, because you have the reality of belonging to Jesus. He bought you with his own life and death. You are his, and there is nothing that matters more than being Christ's. We are not enslaved to impress ordinary men or to be their servants because Christ has set us free. There's nothing that could bring us to rejoice more than belonging to Jesus, that He has bought us, and that is what can give us contentment in whatever phase of the Christian life we have now. Let's pray. Father God, we do know that it's easy to try to measure ourselves by what the world tells us about what it is we do, uh, and we ask that you would help us to be gospel people, that we would not measure ourselves or others by their supposed worldly success, but they, that we would look to see, does this person belong to Christ, and do they endeavor to keep God's commands. This is the substance of the Christian life, and we ask that you would help us to place our emphasis upon that now and always, and that we would value belonging to Jesus. And so we pray that as we go into this week, that you would remind us of that in our daily tasks, that we do this as people who belong to Jesus. And even as we engage with others, that we would do so as people who belong to Jesus and even hoping that they 
might belong to Jesus as well. So give us opportunities to speak about Christ. Help us to disregard what people think of whatever calling we might have at this time. Because we indeed are yours. And we ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen.